Hey, Jared, what's up? G'day, Drew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. What's going on with uh, Decolonizing Sunday School this fall? Well, the name change must be official because Drew has said it on the podcast. Uh, we're partnering with the warehouse in South Africa to be studying Emmanuel Katangoli, his brilliant text, The Sacrifice of Africa, A Political Theology of Africa. So if people have a heart to decolonize their faith and be exposed to other texts, Dr. Kangoli's text is a great place to start. How about you, Drew, in, in terms of um, what we're doing in Subversive Seminary? What's up next? Yeah, we're, we're excited to announce our new book for Subversive Seminary. We're going to start in September with Watershed Discipleship, which was edited by our good friend Shed Myers. We believe that our commitment to anti-racist and decolonizing discipleship must include and take seriously our ecological crisis. And so we'll be starting Tuesday, September 7th in the U.S. and September 8th in Western Australia. And so folks that are hoping to engage in whether it be decolonizing Sunday school or subversive seminary, they can apply and we hope that we can join them in this journey this fall. G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr. Drew Hart's new book, who will be a witness, igniting activism for God's justice, love, and deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love, and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble, to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. So I would like to just introduce our guests. Um, I think most people know who he is already, um, Shane Claiborne. He is a speaker, activist, and author. He founded The Simple Way. He leads Red Letter Christians, which is something I'm a part of. Um, he uh, has been committed to fighting things like ending the death penalty, uh, putting an end to gun violence. Um, he's written many, many books. I won't name all of them, but um, known for Irresistible Revolution, Jesus for Presidents, Common Prayer, Executing Grace, others. I think his most recent one was Beating Guns. Um, and so it's just a, a great witness in terms of his writing work that he's done. He showed he's appeared in Time Magazine, Esquire. He's been on CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera, Fox News, all over the place. Um, he speaks regularly at gatherings, festivals, conferences all around the globe. Um, and for me, I, I think of him first and foremost as um, as Philly, you know, um, and that's the connection that we have as 
the Philly connection. I got to name that. Um, and so just grateful to be in conversation with you, Shane. Thanks for making some time to, to converse about uh, who will be a witness and particularly just the beginning of it in the introduction. Yeah, well, I, all that sounds good, I guess. But I, the most important thing is I, I'm a student of Dr. Drew Hart. Uh, we've been friends for a lot of years and I, I've, uh, I, I love everything we've done together, man. So you, you and Jared, anytime I can be together with y'all, make some new friends like the lovely people on my screen. It's a good, good night. I'm, it's nine o'clock my time. I'm or nine thirty. I'm on the East Coast, and I'm I'm coming at y'all. I think y'all know this. Drew is uh, from our uh, school bus converted into a tiny house that's solar powered. So my lighting's not great because my wife keeps turning the lights down because I can't use all our electricity tonight. But I'm, gonna, I'm I'm really really pumped to be a part of the conversation. I love listening to everybody's reflections. I got to read the introduction again today. And I'm just pumped to get this book out there everywhere, man. I'm excited about the hearts it's going to touch. And um, so pump. Yeah. Awesome. Man. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, for this book, I mean, one of the big things um, when I was thinking about like, not only the introduction, but what I wanted to do with the book overall was thinking about like, how do I orient people around radical discipleship to the nonviolent Messiah? How do we grapple with um, the mangled history? of the church, its, its legacy in terms of Christendom and white supremacy, colonialism. Um, and then also, how do we then um, give some strategies and direct the church in terms of practical things that it can do, right? Um, in terms of bearing witness on the, at the grassroots level for justice. And so I know that you, um, you've been involved in a whole range of justice work in terms of death penalty, um, as I mentioned before, um, gun rights, um, I even, I feel like you've more increasingly recently, I've been seeing you connected more and more with Poor People's Campaign. You want to talk a little bit about like what motivates you and the kind of work that you're doing um, as it relates to justice? What, what's the kind of orientation that, that draws you into that kind of work? Yeah, and I, you know, I'll, I'll make a segue into some of the material you've written because um, the, it's interesting that I'm recording this down in Tennessee where I grew up. Uh, even yeah. though I've been in Philly for 25 years and Katie and I are intentionally spending a little time living on a van down by the river uh, and, you know, but spending time with our family and literally you get the real sense that that white man's religion, that toxic evangelicalism is still very poisonous here. You know, I mean, I fell in love with Jesus down here. So, but then I've seen that the same people that led me to Jesus have led us to Donald Trump. I mean, we got Trump flags everywhere. We got Confederate flags everywhere. We still have a statue. This is going to shock people uh, that are internationals on this call, but we still have a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, one of the founders, um, the first grand wizard of the KKK, a Confederate general in the Capitol uh, here in Nashville. And it's, you know, so there's these competing narratives of what America is about and, and, and also faith has everything to do with that. You know, like just uh, less than an hour from where I am right now is where the Trail of Tears started, where uh, Cherokee and other native, you know, nations were pushed off and forced off of their land. And we went there to try to like, you know, learn a little bit about how do we remember this and we could we drove around for an hour and couldn't find a single uh, historic marker there right so i think you know some of this um the the 
the religion that you know Frederick Douglass talked about the uh, that's so unlike Christ but it camouflages itself as Christianity is is here and so that your book is so um, important um, and you know it's it's no coincidence that the same states like Tennessee that have held on to the death penalty the longest Tennessee still uses the electric chair and these states that continue to hold on to the death penalty are the same states that held on to slavery the longest. That's and they're right. the same states that have the highest concentration of Christians. Literally, the Bible Belt is the death belt when it comes right. to uh, the you know executions. And I, I kind of I wrote a book on the death penalty because it, it's the you know an onion that you peel away the layers and you see all this other stuff. But you know, I, I think that that uh, what, one of the things that I, I think would be interesting for you to talk about, Drew, is that if we're not careful, though, that white man's religion does colonize the entire landscape of Christianity. So people leave Trump evangelicalism and they think that they're done with Christianity. But I think what is so important is that leaving Trump evangelicalism may actually be not the end, but the very beginning of a a real authentic faith to see that like God is at work in, uh, in some of the most healthy parts of the church or outside of that. And so that's why I really, I I think, you know, it's so important to remember that yes, 80% of white evangelicals continue to defend Trump. I think that's changing, but anyway, when you get outside of white evangelicalism, it's the exact opposite. 80% of non-white evangelicals are against Trump, you know? So I think those competing narratives are in, everywhere from our uh, historic monuments to, you know, our contemporary politics. And so, you know, you, you name that so well, uh, even in the introduction, but throughout your book. So I don't know if you want to say more about that, but I think that colonizing of the Franklin Grahams and the, you know, Jerry Falwells that we go, well, I don't want to be a part of Christianity because of them. It gives them way too much power and races a lot of the really beautiful voices of the church. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really important. And I think for me, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I intentionally, like you think about some of the people I quote, I quote Cyprian, right? I quote yeah. Menno Simons, I quote Sojourner Truth, and I quote Frederick Douglass, right? And I want to represent that there's another stream, right? A, a, a Christian tradition that emerges on the underside of society that has always existed through the ages, um, that we can look to, that we can draw f- uh, inspiration from, um, that has nothing to do with a top-down, coercive, violent, oppressive Christianity that that we know too often in this land. And so I think uh, for folks, hopefully, when they begin to realize there's, there's other communities that on the underside of it all uh, that bear witness to a, a liberating Jesus, right, to a nonviolent Messiah that stands in contradiction to and challenges and confronts um, the evil that we see um, that that's bolsters the status quo. When we begin to see that, I think hopefully people will realize, as you said, well, um, leaving Trump Christianity, that's the first step towards Jesus, right? Um, yeah. um, when we can let go of, of the status quo mascot, the, the mascot that we've made Jesus into and somehow he's like bolstering the status quo. And I think that it's just deeply vandalized who Jesus is and what he's, the kind of vocation he calls us into as the people of God. And so I think, yeah, um, it's important. Um, and I, and even for people of color, sometimes we're a little too quick to buy the narrative of the dominant cultural tradition, 
rather than our own ancestors and the way that they reinterpreted and the way that they practiced um, their own faith, right? And I think that we've got to actually own, um, look back, remember where we've come from for all of us and for anybody baptized into Jesus, then this is uh, a part of your your adopted faith that you can um, draw and, and be inspired by all these folks who've lived faithfully and resisted along these for so many centuries. Yeah. 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 I saw Sarah Faye getting her Pentecostal going over there. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's uh, what what we've got to do too, is not just the deconstruction, right? And that's what you you do so well. It's like, cause you can get into these circles that are just post evangelical therapy, you know? And I mean, there's a space (laughs) for that, but like we got to reconstruct a better, more robust theology, you know? The other thing I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit is I, I, I mean, one of my, my, uh, reflections on the Reformation is we were critical of the, uh, you know, the papacy and Rome and the, you know, all things that were very worthy of critique in the Catholic Church. Um, but then we kind of transferred in Protestantism a lot of that power to the state. And uh, I think that, you know, it's been said that Martin Luther was actually the celebrity endorsement of the death penalty because he said the state is not just the hand of uh or the executioner is not just the hand of the state but the executioner is the hand of god because this is god ordained power and yet the anabaptist tradition uh and and a lot of the historic black church other traditions have been critical of that power because you know uh uh and and i i think it'd be interesting to hear you say some of that because a lot of us are still clinging for a state that will do right you know (laughs) And yet there's this kind of healthy suspicion of state power in the Anabaptist tradition and in a lot of other traditions. So I don't know if you want to say more about that, but right now there's a lot of people looking for a political savior right now on the left and on the right. Yeah, that's right. I think that, um, and that's one of my concerns is our, our, the captivity of our imagination, right? Um, Of our political imagination, of our social imagination. Um, And it's really killed our prophetic witness on the ground um, precisely because we can't imagine um, uh, moving forward except for some kind of course of Christianity, right? Whether it is a progressive vision or or not, it's nonetheless, it's always a top-down coercive imagination. And, and it for me, it's it's not a question of like, I, I am completely uh, full on board with the need for policy change, working for that. Um, but when we imagine uh, Christian supremacy over society as the answer to our problems, um, we get to we get into all kinds of dangers. And so when we look from a historical standpoint and think about uh, the the Reformation, um, and all you're seeing is uh, going from this one huge system of Christendom, Christian supremacy, to a fragmented Christendom, right? Different kinds of top-down arrangements, um, but none of them really imagined. Uh, a bottom-up flourishing from, from you know, and so I think that there's ways in which we still, for so so many traditions, can't even imagine that that's an option on the table for us. And so, yeah, I, I think um, some of my chapters when I get into later around Christian supremacy and white supremacy, religious nationalism, and all that stuff later, um, really point to the fact that I'm concerned about um, our limited imagination for how we can actually interact 
in our world in actual political ways, right? I'm not afraid, like some people are actually afraid of using the word political. For me, I'm not afraid of using the word political. It is political, but it's not uh, partisan, right? Um, and it's yeah. not, um, and, and it's not, and, and when I say that, I should also go on and, because and, I know, and at least in my groups, as we were talking about the chapter, one of the things um, that I wanted to emphasize was, even though I'm not partisan, that's also not me saying, I'm gonna go wishy-washy, pretend like it's all, a, I'm gonna equivocate as if everybody's doing the exact same thing, it doesn't matter, so we should meet in the middle, right? I think that that's just as dangerous when we begin to pretend like, oh, Republicans and Democrats are all the same, no, they're all status quo in one way or the other, um, but they're not all the same. And there are ways in which we can certainly um, see opportunities uh, to push certain politicians towards justice and the flourishing of all people in ways that we might not be able to, certainly with, um, you know, that fox in the, in the White House right now. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, as you're talking about that, I think of one of the... Uh... Uh, things I've heard Reverend Barber say, who's one of the, you know, the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, he says, some of the things that we're talking about, they're not about the left and right. They're about right and wrong. That's right. Uh, and, right. And, and, you know, there, there's, there's things that we've, we're, I mean, we're in a unique situation right now, and I'm very aware that people are in lots of different political situations where they are. Not everybody's coming from the U.S. and whatnot, but I think that, that there is, um, that part of our problem is this sort of dualism and the binary thinking that you've just got these two options. And I think what happens right. a lot of times in church history, and you really correct this in your writing, is uh, we kind of, it's, it's like we drive the car off the left side of the road, and then we yank the wheel and we drive the side off the right, you know, right, drive the car right. off the other side of the road, and we overcorrect what we've where we've been imbalanced, you know, and that's what a lot of the heresies of the church were. They were overemphasizing one truth at the expense of another, right? So we're erasing one thing. So whether it's faith and works or is salvation individual or is it, you know, social, these are tensions that Dr. King and so many others held together and said, you know, it, it, it's, it's not, these are not either or, you know, when people ask me about guns and they say, you know, it's really not a, a, a gun problem. It's a heart problem. I always say, why can't it be both? You know, like, like, God heals hearts, but people change laws. And you think of racism in the civil rights movement, even now, of course, but like in the, in the 60s, um, no, no, you can't legislate love. No law could change a racist person's heart. Only God could do that. And that's why we need to rely on God, right? And you're so centered in that in your writing. But we also needed to change some laws. And that's why the that's politics right. are important. We needed people to be able to vote and swim in the same swimming pools and sit wherever they want on the bus, you know, like, so laws had to change to reflect that justice. And um, so I, I think I, I see that, you know, in your writing, and I don't, I don't know if you want to say more about that today, but I think that's where we, you know, Dr. King said, yeah, you can, a law can't make you love me, but it can keep you from killing me. <laughs> you know, right. so That's we right. need both. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is in, in the United States, I mean, if it wasn't for, at, when the Civil War was happening, the majority of white people could care less about black people, right? I mean, that's a, and I'm talking about even in the North, most white Northerners did not care about the well-being of, of black people. Um, they were worried about sectional issues in terms of the expansion for, you know, uh, free labor, but, uh, but they didn't care. And so 
the change of laws actually did create the conditions in which more people eventually did change their hearts, right? Um, yeah. And so there's an interesting way in which that actually created better conditions when you actually had practices and policies in place that were actually more just, it actually opened up the possibilities for people to have softened hearts around things that God actually cares about. Um, and so those things can actually really work well to, with one another. We don't have to choose one or the other, uh, but we certainly don't have to pretend like, um, like heart matters will, will, like changing laws can create good conditions for people to actually yeah. change um, their own orientation, right? That they can actually align themselves um, as, become more fully human um, as God desires us to be because of that. And so all of those things, we ought to be as holistic as possible. And speaking of that, I mean, I'm curious what you think. So one of the things I do in the intro introduction is, and it's in the title itself, right? Using the word deliverance, right? And at least, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure people could quibble. In some ways it is quibbling a little bit, right? I quibble a little bit, but I do want people, as I do it, I do it to make a point to get people to think about why I choose the word deliverance because in my own context growing up, um, the word deliverance was holistic, right? It was a word that it could be applied to social problems, spiritual problems, a political problem, any situation that you're in, right? Um, the word deliverance, um, I know I could go back into my home community that maybe the word liberation wasn't a word that would have been used quite as much, but deliverance would have been understood in a whole broad way of, of and, and thinking about um, just the holistic way that God responds to uh, our needs, to the captivity that we find ourselves in, to the political struggles, the problems, the, uh, the uh, economic disparities that exist, right? The, just the deaths, unnecessary deaths from gun violence. Uh, just, we could go on and on and on. And, and, and I think for me to talk about sin and God's deliverance in the most holistic way is really important so that we can talk about social structures and as well as the kind of change and transformation, repentance, rebirth that we all need to go through as individuals as well. Yeah, I think it's a great word. And I love, I think we need fresh language too, you know, and I mean, that's old language, but you're dusting it off a little bit. And I think right. that that idea that we need a deliverer right now, I mean, it's a constant thread all through the scripture. It's something that people feel in their souls right now, you know, I mean, we've got thousands and thousands of people in our, our streets just crying out, you know, we can't breathe with Eric Garner and, and George Floyd and so many others. And so I think those lives that are being crushed are showing us we need, uh, you know, a deliverer. So I, I think it's beautiful. And, I, you know, I heard one of my brothers today that spent, you know, over a decade behind bars, he said, uh, you know, we got a shout at the top of our lungs right now, let my people go. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, I think that right. that cry is, is there right now, you know, and that, that, you know, who God has been is who God will be. And God is delivering people from uh, the Pharaohs, the Herods, the Caesars that are hurting them. And we've got our own, our own uh, folks that we need delivered from right now. So it's, yeah, it's a great word, man. Yeah. Uh, another thing, which I, I, I talk a little bit about, um, and this is very U S centered, right. Um, but American conceptions of freedom, although in some ways you could say it's influenced anyone that's deeply influenced by the enlightenments, um, also is going to be in some form, right. Drawn into this as well. Um, but thinking about, um, and this was written obviously way before COVID, right. But certainly in the U S and I know Jared has talked about, uh, on portions of Australia are dealing with this maybe more than other portions, but that there are ways in which, you know, 
people are just so obsessed with their freedom, their individual rights, what, you know, you can't infringe on what they're going to do. And I think that that has certainly created all kind of um, troubles for us in the United States in terms of just getting COVID under control. Like while some places, you know, they're barely have any people at all um, with COVID at all here, all of a sudden, you know, it's just outbreak after outbreak after outbreak. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about um, the way that we think about freedom in the United States? Um, and how does that differ from God's liberation, God's deliverance. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, and and before I get there, I was watching this little chat thing. I'm I'm real. I got my ADD, so I'm I'm looking at. I've got so many different things happening, but I like these chat things. And I I think it is worth noting that Beth and some other folks, you know, mentioned this idea of deliverance as a delivery. You know, as a as a um, giving birth to something. It's an interesting take on it because I've heard a lot of folks talking about. Um, that powerful verse uh, from Romans that uh, all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right? So I think that same groaning in our streets is the labor pains, right? That, that, that the world is pregnant with, with something new. And uh, I can't speak as a, a um, credible witness on it, this as a dude, but I hear that labor, you know, involves a lot of sweat and tears and pain and, and, it's called labor for a reason, you know? So I think that uh, the great Sikh activist and lawyer, you know, Valerie Cower, she gives this image that is America in the darkness of the tomb or is it the darkness of the womb, right? Mm. And, and maybe America is not dying, but America is being born. born. So it's yeah. a powerful image. And I think it's, you know, in line with that, it's just an interesting take on this delivery uh, thing too, from, from some of the folks that that may have different meaning too uh, on the call. So um, yeah, but but so to go back to this this um, freedom thing, it's interesting because um, you you point out that individualism, and and I think you know how we made this sort of idolatry of individualism that sort of uh, also colonizes our imagination when it comes to rights and things like that. So I I think in particular when it comes to like the Second Amendment, uh, you know, our right to bear arms in this country. It's really interesting that James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution, um, he said that liberty can be endangered by the abuse of liberty. So mm-hmm. one person's like limitless freedom can infringe on somebody, someone else's right to live. And I think that battle's happening right now in our country on a whole bunch of different issues. But certainly we can see it on in guns, you know. Um, I, I wrote about this guy that's got over a thousand guns, you know, and his right to, you know, own assault rifles or whatever is obviously like that right begins to, it's why well-regulated was written into the constitution, you know, but especially for those of us that are Christian, you know, I mean, we've got a higher authority than even the constitution. And we have scriptures that say, you know, don't let your freedom uh, infringe or hurt someone else. And so I think, you know, we've got to really challenge these abstract nouns of, you know, freedom and uh, because they can certainly be abused. Uh, and and uh, there's a lot of things that uh, people are claiming to be their freedom. And I even think of some of the soldiers that I've known that have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan, they said, I came back realizing that I'm fighting and di- we're dying and we're killing for abstract nouns. And I'll never forget when he said that. He said, I'm fighting for freedom. But as I'm, you know, we went to Iraq to get rid of terrorism and we, we realized we're creating it. You know, we're just adding 
fuel to the fire. So I, I think that we've got to really question those, uh, those freedoms uh, that, I mean, the whole gospel is about, I, I, I want to be careful because I think that we do need to fight for human rights. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too. But like, we also follow one who, like Jesus left all the comfort of heaven and joins the margins, right? And all of the entitlement that he could uh, have have called upon, he's he's absorbing everything that we're capable of doing wrong to one another. He's born a refugee. He's executed on a cross, and so I think that exposure of the powers is exactly what Jesus does. Uh, so I, I don't know, if you're, you, but you should, I, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit on your, this delicate dance between fighting and advocating for rights. Um, and, and, you know, when those rights collide with someone else's, you know, right to survive, how do you, you know, how do you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think um, my approach when I think about rights is, like that's always secondary to um, pursuing like shalom and beloved community and the flourishing of all people. And so for me, rights is just um, a Western approximation of trying to recognize people's dignity, right? Um, but I don't, for me, like I, I try not to get lost in the language of rights as the starting point for my conversation. Um, and that's just rather an approximation of us trying to recognize dignity in people. Um, but for bigger than that then is how do I insist on and try to pursue the flourishing of all people, especially those who are most vulnerable, especially those who, who've been violated, especially those who are oppressed in our communities, those where suffering is, is disproportionate, right, in certain communities. Um, how do I keep track of that? Um, and so in the way of Jesus is, I think, models for us, right, this nonviolent Messiah models a kind of way forward for us to um, be in solidarity with those who are uh, suffering, um, to empathetically join and in, in lock arms with them, um, I think is, is the path forward and clash with the evil that we see in our society today. And I think that, that it's Jesus's example that invites us in his call, right? It's literally in so many different ways, Jesus invites us to follow after and to clash with the evil. Um, and I mean, one of the ways I think about what Jesus does is, I mean, I think of him as a trickster in like the African tradition, right? Uh, outwitting the evil forces, outwitting evil, outwitting um, death itself, um, and outwitting then the forces, authorities, rulers, structures, um, you know, politicians that are, out, are, that are death dealing in our world, um, outwitting all of those kind of forces for good. And I think that uh, that's something that, anybody can do. You don't have to be, um, have political power to do that. You don't have to have access to the elites and the establishments, right? Or donor money to do any of those things. It's actually on the terms of the oppressed that you uh, engage in, in that kind of battle and that kind of fight for justice. And I think that that's really what's powerful about the way of Jesus is. It, 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 it in, invites us all into um, a fight that that is, um, position best for those who are oppressed. Um, um, yeah. That, yeah, I think that's huge. 
Well, I'm following you. I was lead on this, uh, Drew and Jared and Josh and other folks. But the last thing I, I'll, I'll say, I don't know if we opened it up for dialogue or how y'all want to do it, but this is the most sophisticated uh, Zoom call I think I've been on where you got your small groups and your discussions and it's, it's wonderful. Um, I'm glad I got to hear all the your all's reflections too coming out of those groups. They were they were really moving to me. But the the last thing I thought I would just uh, draw on from your your introduction is uh, the the project you know, that you start with of uh, Dr. King, the idea that we need confrontation. And I think that's a constant theme of Dr. King's that, um, you know, he talked about sort of how there's the devil's peace and there's God's peace, real shalom, as you would say, you know, that, that the, there's one version of peace that is just the absence of conflict. Um, and there's another version of peace that's real peace, that's the presence of justice. And so it's our job to disrupt the devil's peace, right? It's our job to, and I think that's what the, the movement in our country, uh, the racial reckoning, the Black Lives Matter movement, all that that's shaking up right now is that kind of holy disruption. Um, and, and, you know, as I think of, of Dr. King, one of the things that he said is that the church isn't meant to be the servant of the state or the master of the state. The church is meant to be the conscience of the state. And you that's really... Right you know, constantly point to that. And, and, and he said that we, we need to expose injustice so that it becomes so uncomfortable that people can't help but respond. So I think your call to that um, holy confrontation and to shake things up and to remember that Jesus, yes, he wept over Jerusalem, uh, but he also flipped tables in the temple. I mean, Jesus uh, uh, was was one who... I think, you know, invites us into that, uh, that movement that is both about compassion and about uh, justice and disruption. And we've got a beautiful history of civil disobedience, uh, you know, all through our uh, church history that you point to. And, and you know, that, 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 that idea that we expose injustice by holding up a mirror, really. And I, I think of some of the protests I've been to where literally we hold up mirrors so that the riot police are invited to look at themselves. Like, what, why are you meeting nonviolent protesters with tear gas and weapons of war and tanks? You know, I, I think it's an invitation to kind of look at in the mirror. And Jesus certainly exposes that, you know, naked on the cross. And, and that uh, profound Dr. King's is you can this in jail and we will still love you. You can burn houses and we will still love you. Put your dogs on us and we will love you, but we will wear you down by our love. And I think it's that call that we see, you know, in the streets right now, the persistent widow that, you know, the, the, the woman going to the judge over and over and, you know, until he does justice. So I think that's what we, we need, that kind of holy confrontation that you call us to. So uh, I don't know if you want to see more about the Project C as you see it, you know, needed today, but uh, it was a good word you started us with in the introduction on that. Uh, thank you, Shane. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe I'll just end on this note just saying that, um, yeah, as I was thinking about um, Dr. King in particular, and after he, you know, he decides that, you know, the, he's going to put on his blue jeans, he goes into the closet, he comes out in his blue jeans, um, and it really symbolizes for him and for everyone else immediately. They all know what it means when he's wearing his blue jeans, that it's time to roll up the sleeves and it's time to get to work and that they're going to get arrested, right? This is Passover weekend. This is Easter weekend. Um, and this is not going to be 
Easter weekend like normally practiced, right? Um, this is not just about getting dressed up and worshiping Jesus. It's literally embodying the story of Jesus. It's literally following the way and taking it into the streets. And I think that when he puts on his blue jeans, it's an invitation for all of us to put on our blue jeans, right? All right. Um, and so I'm hoping that um, as we think about um, what this book can do, hopefully, and what we can do in our own communities is to, to be the ones to be putting on our metaphorical blue jeans um, for justice, for truth, uh, for our neighbors who are vulnerable. For I, I know in here in Harrisburg, we've got undocumented neighbors and ICE agents that are constantly still, right, just relentless in our community. Uh, we've got Harrisburg School District. We have um, it's literally under a state of receivership because of just the underfunding and just the struggles that it's going through. And so our children are not getting properly educated, right? Um, and these are reasons why we should all be putting on our blue jeans. When, when black and brown people are being shot in the streets um, under state violence, um, I think these are reasons why we ought to be putting on our blue jeans and um, taking up the way of Jesus um, and clashing when necessary with confrontation with the powers that be, whoever they be, right? Um, and I think that it's precisely the fact that this in some ways teaches us how to fight, right? Um, um, that we can um, take that and then study and learn how to do this well and draw on um, those who've been doing this work. And so um, anyway, that's the invitation. Thank you, Shane, for joining in conversation. Um, appreciate you, brother. Hopefully we'll uh, cross paths in Philly sometime when I'm around. Um, but grateful. All right. Peace. Absolutely. Yeah, Brother Shane, feel yeah. free to, to hang around if you can. If, if Katie Joe can spare the extra electricity <laughs> for, uh, yeah. for your Zoom call. Um, when, when I go um, dark, you know, I'll just give you a little wave. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but just to say, Shane, if, uh, if you had never written any of your texts, um, uh, you have our utmost respect for the way that you live your life all that you do when no one's watching, when you're not on a stage, um, uh, the integrity of your work and witness. I don't know if anybody saw uh, um, our sister Sarah Bessie's uh, uh, fire uh, tweet this morning where she wrote, woe to you, smug, gleeful hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, tweeting holier than thou pious platitudes and snide judgments, all while disregarding mercy, justice, faithfulness. Strain those gnats you camel swallowers, snakes, brood of vipers, you house, your house is indeed desolate. We see you. Um, there is so much cheap stuff. There is so much that doesn't ever move beyond pixels. Uh, Shane, uh, for, for somebody who, um, you know, we've been mates for well over a, a decade and seeing all the stuff, um, who you are when no one's watching, we're thankful for you and the kind of gift that is to the larger body. So please keep doing what you do. Thanks. It's real sweet of y'all. And I, I really do believe that, you know, we, we rub off on each other. So I, I keep trying to surround myself with folks that remind me of Jesus, like, uh, like the two of you. And I'm sure so many other folks on this call and we, we need each other right now. I think like we, we just got done roasting hot dogs and, you know, you, you keep a fire alive by stoking the, the, the coals together and you put a fire out by scattering, scattering the coals out. So we, we really need to keep family each other's flame, keeping each other's hope alive right now. So I'm, I'm grateful to see all you on the screen. It's like a, all the coals of the fire, you know, warming it up. And I'm grateful for your book, Drew. I think it's going to uh, fan the flame in so many souls. If you want to be part of this growing global community, 
You can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone, wherever you're found. Be it in remote communities in the Kimberley, or a township in Cape Town, or downtown Berlin, or on the south side of Chicago, or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you, so let's work to do that together. Where I see